This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you are listening to episode 47. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review the Planet Microcap podcast on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Dennis Amato from Ancora Advisors. I recently met Dennis while organizing the Planet Microcap showcase, and he sent me his firm's investment letters to read. I thought they were really quite insightful on microcap investing, and there was one letter in particular that caught my eye, and it was a paper they published in October 2014 called, and I quote, microcap myths. We've touched on this topic a couple of times, especially when it comes to mainstream media's portrayal of microcap stocks, well, penny stocks, and I thought this would be an interesting topic to cover in an episode. The goal for this episode is to learn more about Ancora's microcap investment strategy and demystify some of their microcap myths. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 47 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Dennis Amato, but first, a word from our sponsor. A comprehensive streaming of market data, research, and portfolio management application for you. QuoteStream is a real-time streaming quotes and research system designed for the day trader, retail investor, institutional investor, both new and old. QuoteStream offers low-latency, tick-by-tick data, advanced charting, comprehensive technical analysis, news, and research. With no software to install and no servers to maintain, QuoteStream is the ideal solution for you. Go to stocknewsnow.com and start your free 7-day trial. Click the quote stream banner in the header or real-time quotes in the nav bar to get started building and managing your investments. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I have Dennis Amato on the program. He is the Managing Director, Microcap Equities for Ancora Advisors. Dennis, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Thanks, Bob. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you as well and uh, wishing your Cavaliers over there in Cleveland all the best of luck tonight. Uh, we'll take all the luck we can get. <laughs> that's that's for sure. Um, so as we do on the on the podcast uh, at the very beginning, I want to start with your background. You know, uh, what what is it and how'd you get into the investing business? <clears throat> Bob, I started uh, almost 50 years ago in the investment uh, uh, business by joining the trust department of a large Cleveland, Ohio bank. And uh, I served there as a portfolio manager uh, research director and eventually the chief investment officer uh, of the trust department. And after 25 years, I left there to join a uh, uh, startup of a boutique investment uh, advisory firm, which uh, over the years is what has morphed into uh, today's Ancora Advisors. So then at, at what point in your career then, uh, how did you get started investing in microcap stocks? 
Well, pretty early in, in my career, it became uh, very clear to me that uh, if you were going to outperform the market, you had to do something uh, different than what everyone else was doing. And to do that, uh, it seemed to me you had to find some area of inefficiency uh, because otherwise you were just going to uh, you know, follow the crowd and, and do what everyone else was doing and, and have very little chance of, of outperforming. And uh, it became pretty obvious that one of the most inefficient sectors uh, of the market was the small and micro cap uh, stocks. And uh, we made an early foray into that area uh, in, the, in the trust department uh, by setting up a small cap uh, regional uh, company focus, which uh, was called the Ohio Heartland portfolio, where we used our proximity to companies in our region to hope to get to get what we hoped would be a research advantage, and uh, in order to have the research advantage, it made sense to focus on those that weren't followed by a lot of other uh, research analysts, which naturally was the small and microcap stocks in our region. So, so Dennis, then what is Ancora's microcap investment strategy? Well. From a combination of historical evidence, uh, along with my experience over the years, uh, it's resulted in a strategy based on, on four main uh, aspects. The first one is valuation. Um, all the historical studies show that uh, actually micro cap value uh, does much, much better than micro cap growth. Uh, so uh, we use a, a valuation a criteria that is based a lot on traditional parameters such as price to book, PE, price to sales. But then we overlay it with a, a, an analysis that's based on what we call normalized return analysis, where we're trying to identify what a company's normalized return will be or should be, not what it's currently doing, which focuses uh, us on undervalued situations that have the potential to recover. Uh, the second aspect is balance sheets. We, we think it's very important in the microcap sector to stay with very strong balance sheets, which gives a company time to correct the problem that's causing its undervaluation and also gives us as portfolio managers the confidence to keep buying even if the stock is heading lower. Uh, third uh, pillar, if you will, is insider activity. Uh, we have found that if you focus on what the insiders are doing with microcaps, it gives you a much, much uh, a better uh, picture as to uh, uh, what, what might be happening because uh, in small companies, the insiders really know uh, what's going on. And finally, we look for a potential catalyst and hopefully that shortens the time frame between your purchase and when it eventually uh, works out. So Dennis, just to quickly follow up on, on those points that you're looking for in your investment strategy, um, not to take it one by one, but there was one thing that you said that, was, that I, we haven't heard yet on the podcast, and that was the, the normalized, I, I forget exactly how you phrased it. What, what was that again? Uh, normalized return analysis. Basically what we're doing is saying, hey, this company um, historically has earned, say, 15% mm -hmm. return on equity. And the industry that it operates in tends to earn 15% or close to it. But right now it's only earning eight. So we feel our job is to go in and say, why is this company only earning eight? 
what will allow it to get back to normal? Because we think that in economics and in finance, there is a tendency for things to uh, return to norm. And uh, so our job as analysts to say, what well, you know, what would prevent it? What will create uh, as a catalyst? What will what will get it back there? And uh, obviously, if a company's going from 8% return back up to 15, uh, you're getting not only accelerating and increasing earnings, but the market then tends to put a higher PE on it than it is currently as well. And that's what gives you the, the big upside. So then when, you're, when we're talking about catalysts, you know, what, how do you quantify that? You know, what, what are certain things that you look for um, when, it, when you're taking in that part of your analysis? Well, it has to be what I call potential catalyst, because if it was an obvious catalyst, the right. market would put, and it would already be in there. But I would, I would classify things like uh, a change in management uh, that, that we evaluate as being positive, uh, a new product or a new strategy that they're implementing, uh, something to say, hey, there's a reason to think that, that there could be some improvement coming. Mm-hmm. So it, in, a, in a paper that you just recently published, uh, not too long ago, in October 2014, called, uh, and I quote, microcap myths. You discuss, as the title states, microcap myths. And before we get into some of the, some of the myths and, and get into a little dialogue on those, you know, why do you think these myths exist? Well, the myths exist uh, primarily because there's so few analysts and investors uh, that focus and look on, on this sector. And, and that very uh, absence of people that, that uh, focus on it is not only why there's myths surrounding it, but also why excess returns are available uh, in, in this area. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're. I mean, I guess these are things that just must have persisted as a result of maybe like one bad incident, or maybe there's a couple things that happened. I mean, would you say it's something like that as well? Well, it may be that in in individual investors' minds, but I think in general, a lot of it's due to misperception in the financial uh, press and the financial media, and they sort of. Uh, uh, promulgate the, these myths from time to time as well, uh, and they're not familiar with the area. So uh, it's, it's just the kind of thing that gets uh, uh, enhanced by uh, by repetition, if you will, and people aren't aren't critically thinking about about it. And you're and you're probably stuck in the position where you know you have to do a lot of educating <laughs> for people that you know, are interested in giving and, and putting some money to work in your fund, right? I mean... Oh, definitely. Because if you can't convince people that microcaps is a promising uh, area for uh, outperformance, that uh, doesn't matter how good we are uh, if they don't even want to be in, in the area. So our first job is to dispel some of the myths, number one, and convince them uh, based on uh, not only historical evidence, but also... Uh, the whole rationale surrounding it as to why you know the historical outperformance is likely to continue uh, into the future. Would you say that your frequency of education has uh, been going up or down of late? Um, it, it's you know it's about the same. Uh, <laughs> okay. almost, every, almost everybody you talk to about it, you first have to start out uh, with the basic microcap education, and once they get over that. Um, it, it's much easier uh, to to make the sale, right? 
So with that, that's actually a perfect transition into the first, addressing the first myth. And I think this is like the number one as it was number one in the paper, you know, and, you know, from your perspective, why are microcap stocks not the same as penny stocks? You know, why do you think this myth exists and always keeps uh, coming up? Well, again, I think a lot of it goes back to the financial press, uh, uh, but also the fact that most penny stocks are microcap, but most microcaps are not penny stocks, and, and people don't make that distinction. Um, penny stocks, in my mind, are, are often small startups. Uh, they're sort of fly-by-night companies. Uh, used to be in the old days, those were the uranium companies or the, the new uh, biotech companies with, with no product. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, there's many microcaps out there that are very substantial companies that have very long uh, histories. And, and in some cases, we've got companies that have been around uh, 50 years or more. Uh, and because we define microcap as those with capitalizations under 500 million, um, you know, that defines microcaps. But a lot of our companies may have sales of a billion or more. In my mind, that's hardly fly by night. So um, people have to realize that capitalization comes about from both uh, the number of shares and the price of the stock. And oftentimes it's the fact that the price of the stock has come so far down is what makes it a microcap. But that's also what makes it a very attractive future investment. Yeah, I definitely when it comes to this myth, the financial media and, and even just the, the media in general has really not done uh, our space a lot of favors. You know, uh, I think Wolf of Wall Street is probably the uh, exhibit A. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, the, uh, it's the exciting thing to talk about. The, the, the stock is 10 cents and goes to zero. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's, that's out there. But that's not how we look at, at microcaps. Uh, we're, we're looking at very uh, sound companies, like I said, with good balance sheets, good histories, they just have a temporary problem that's caused their stock to fall into this microcap category. Do you also think like in some ways it's somewhat of an advantage as well? You know, I mean, the fact that, you know, most people like don't even look at, at microcaps because they think, oh, penny stocks, and I'm not even going to bother, too much risk. You know, for those who know where to look and know what they're doing, I mean, you, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's like that 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 hidden gem, you know, so to speak. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. The fact that few people want to play in the sandbox is what what gives us the opportunity. And it's not only because of what you said with regard to their misperception. Many of the large investment managers out there have so much money under management that they can't even think about investing in in microcaps because uh, you know if you have twenty billion under management, why do you want to? Put a couple hundred million into in the microcap. It doesn't mean anything to you, so it, it leaves that sector open for those who have not only the uh, tendency but the wherewithal to to focus on this issue in this area. Mm-hmm. Moving to the next myth that that you address, um, what, this one I, I wanted to kind of clarify. What what do you mean by the myth? Microcaps are a homogeneous group, and why is this not the case? Uh, what we have found is most people, you know, when they're talking about large caps, they'll talk about large cap value, large cap growth, 
even mid-cap value, mid-cap growth. But when you get to micro-cap, most people just seem to lump all micro-caps together. And the big mistake they're making is the fact that there is a huge difference between uh, micro-cap value and micro-cap growth. Um, in fact, uh, if you look at, there's a, there's a study done by Fama and French, which now covers over 53 years of history. And what they have found is that the smallest decile of capitalization, uh, the returns of that smallest decile have ranged from 5.2% to 22.3%. The 5.2 is for those that are in the top decile of price to book. In other words, the most overvalued, which tend to be growth stocks. And the 22% uh, is in the lowest decile of price to book, which obviously tend to be the value component. So, you know, over 50 years, uh, the difference between 5.2 compounded annually and 22 is huge. I mean, just absolutely huge. And uh, so to, to lump everything together, um, you make a real big mistake. And uh, again, maybe it's maybe it's the difference between penny stocks and real companies. But, but we think if, if by looking at micro cap value, you're really playing in the sandbox that has offered the best uh, long-run return over many, many decades. So then in your opinion, and, and I've asked this before, but I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. What, what is the difference then between microcap value and microcap growth? Well, it's a valuation issue. Um, uh, you know, the, the Fama French study broke it down by price to book, but that, that's not the only thing we look at. We look at PE, price to sales, uh, price to book, cash flow, et cetera. Uh, but it, it's not too dissimilar from uh, some other areas where, you know, growth has all the good, positive things built into its price. So the only thing you can do is be disappointed on the negative side, whereas value stocks tend to have all the negatives built into their price. So any change tends to more be on the positive side. And that's, uh, you know, that's where that's where the returns, future returns come in. And and it's a psychological issue as well. Most people would rather be with things that, quote unquote, look good or feel good. Uh, they don't want to be invested in companies that are having problems. It, uh, and so, you know, behavioral finance tells you uh, when you can separate yourself from the crowd that everyone wants to be with the, the good looking guy, if you will, um, uh, you can you can put yourself into an area where uh, you can have better returns. I, I always hearken back to the uh, slogan, uh, would you rather look good or, or make money? <laughs> can't, can't we do both? I don't know. No, I'm just <laughs> no, not, not in most markets. <laughs> uh, that's funny. So, so this actually ties into the next myth that you address, uh, you know, uh, saying, you know, why... Uh, or, or about exposure, to, you can achieve uh, exposure to microcaps through small cap exposure. You know, if, so in if for, to you, what what are the reasons why exposure to microcaps cannot be achieved through small cap exposure? That, well, that's a great question, and and what we found is particularly a lot of consultants tend to tell their clients, well, uh, you know, don't worry about the microcap area. You, you'll get exposed to that through through our uh, uh, allocation to small caps. Uh, and all the studies we've seen, including some by Morningstar, 
have shown that most small cap managers have less than 5% of their portfolio in microcaps. So if, if you're a, a portfolio and you want to allocate 20% of your portfolio to small caps, uh, that means you know 5% of 20% is 1%. You'll have 1% exposure to microcaps. And to me, that just doesn't seem like enough to really benefit from the historical and we think potentially future outperformance that this sector uh, you know, provides. So it, it, it's, it's a mathematical thing. And, and the second aspect is, or the reason it, it exists, is that a lot of small cap managers are so big and have so much money under management, again, they cannot um, allocate enough uh, assets to microcap to make it worth their while. So they, they tend not to, uh, not to do it. Right. And also if like, uh, they have a client that is saying that they want exposure to microcaps just to get the client to be like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, you, yeah, you got it. <laughs> you'll get it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, um, so also, uh, uh, why according to the same paper that, uh, you know, and I quote, while passive investing, in, sorry, while passive indexing may work in the efficient large cap universe, it does not work well in the inefficiently followed and less liquid microcap arena. You know, what's what, what's the reasoning behind this statement? I, I guess it's sort of almost self-explanatory. It's the inefficiency aspect. The fact that uh, so few analysts are following these companies gives you the potential to uncover things that aren't well known and built in to the price. And, and just to give you a, a mathematical uh, reference point, uh, we've done a study on our portfolio and on average, uh, our stocks are followed by 1.6 analysts. In other words, somewhere between one and two analysts on average. Many of our stocks, we're the only one following it, uh, at least in terms of anal you know, analysts, uh, Wall Street analysts. And that compares, uh, just to give you a reference point, that compares to 44 analysts that follow Apple. So if you think you can out-analyze and out-guess and outsmart 44 other highly paid, experienced analysts, uh, as opposed to trying to outperform 1.6 analysts, I know, I know which uh, odds I'll take. Mm -hmm. on, on this point too, you know, uh, this idea also, not just passive indexing, but passive investing. You know, I, I don't know if there's a study out there, maybe you've seen it and I, and I haven't, but I mean, um, have you seen anything with regard to, you know, people just passively, you know, they'll put their money in like an ETF versus this individual stock picking, you know, something that you, you know, your fund, you know, does and I'd say, you know, I do personally, you know, have you, have you seen anything out there like that? Like a, what, which strategy tends to yield the most, uh, uh results? Well, I, I think we've seen uh, some studies that do show that a higher percentage of uh, portfolios in the microcap area outperform the microcap index than, um, you know, than uh, large cap managers that, that might outperform, say, the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't guarantee that you're going to outperform, but I think you it does indicate uh, that, that there is a higher probability uh, of outperforming the index in, uh, in microcap, which, which leads to a strategy in some cases of indexing your large cap 
but going active in the small and micro cap space. Right. And you know, this, this might be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You know, why wouldn't some of these bigger funds that even, even who have some small cap exposure, why wouldn't they just take, you know, a couple, couple million dollars that they have already under management and create a micro cap fund? You know, what, what's, what's stopping them? Like, why, why wouldn't they just create that exposure just at their fund as it is? You know, what, what's stopping? I mean, you guys did it. Um, you know, I, again, I think it goes back to if you're, if you're a certain size, um, it just isn't worth it to them, to the, the, big, the really big managers. Uh, we happen to be a size where we're large enough to be able to devote some resources to this area, but not so large that that having uh, uh, an exposure to microcap uh, isn't isn't valuable to us. And for example, uh, through experience as well as uh, some analysis, it it's often the case that that you can't really um, invest more than say three or four hundred million into this sector, any one manager. Well, for us, that's a nice product. Uh, for a Goldman Sachs or, or one of the other big managers, uh, you know, they would fill that up in a day and then what do we do next? You know, <laughs> right. uh, so that, that's part of it. And if you're too small, well, then, you know, you, you, can, you don't have the resources to, uh, to do some independent research. So, you know, we think we're in the sweet spot of being large enough to, to be able to do a good job, but small enough that it's still meaningful to us. Right. Moving on to, uh, there was actually another paper that you wrote um, regarding uh, the, well, I'll just, I'll ask it in the form of the question. So do, do you think that microcap value investing is a good alternative to private equity? And if so, why? Um, yeah, the paper we wrote, uh, we, we spent quite a bit of uh, study on that. And, uh, what we found is that the historical returns on microcap have been quite similar to that um, uh, of private equity, and in fact have very similar correlation to the large cap, say the S&P 500. But the difference is the uh, microcap portfolio has significantly greater liquidity. As you know, you know, if you go into private equity, you may be tied up for several years. Um, uh, without being able to access your your funds, so uh, to us it makes a lot of sense to at least think about allocating a portion of one's private equity allocation to microcap in order to get similar returns, but have a little more liquidity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it, it's it. This this is one point that I've we've covered a little bit on on the podcast and. It just kind of seems to lend itself, especially when you're talking some of the even smaller, almost nano cap, you know, range type companies. Yeah, we we tend to uh, we tend to go from like say 25 million of capitalization up in order to make sure that we have 25 to 500 million is our sweet spot. Uh, below that, we think uh, you know your liquidity is somewhat limited, so. Uh, we'll occasionally dip slightly below that if we just see an, a tremendous uh, opportunity. But generally, we're, we're staying with 25 million of capitalization and above. Not to say there aren't some good opportunities below that, but uh, we do want to maintain our liquidity. And, and for that reason, in our funds, uh, we don't like to get more than, say, 5% of a particular company stock because 
that that would limit your liquidity uh, also. And that and that's really why you have a limit on how much you can invest in this area. If you get too much, you then have to have either too many stocks, in which case you become an index fund, or you have to have such big positions in individual securities that you lose your liquidity on the other end. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, uh, our studies have shown uh, somewhere between three and four hundred million uh, is is where where you can pretty much max out. So it, just to go back to the, your strategy real quick, you know what would you say is like the number one thing that uh, as a microcap investor um, we should be looking for? You know, I know you, there's everything is important, but if you had to give a little bit of weight to one thing in particular, what would that be? Well, I, I guess value, because that's where where we think the biggest distinction lies in the microcap area between value and growth. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to stay with one because we also find that the balance sheet and financial strength is often overlooked by investors in the microcap, not recognizing how much more important it is for microcap than it is for uh, the large companies. You know, a large company... If they need some temporary funds, they go to their bank. The bank says, okay, here's a line of credit. Microcap companies sometimes don't have that, that luxury. Uh, they get into trouble, and if you don't have time to resolve it, uh, it doesn't matter that you were right in the long run because you're not going to be there uh, to benefit from it. So um, we think balance sheet and value and balance sheet are probably the two uh, biggest uh, components that, that – investors should always keep in mind with with microcap. So this leads into one of my favorite questions and that has to do with uh, you know what what investing experience do you always go back to as the one that helps shape your microcap investing philosophy today? You know I, I don't think there there's really one. I think it's a, a cumulative type of thing. It's the um, it's the experience that that you uh, get over the years that you you see what has what has worked and uh, my my experience has shown to me that the kind of criteria we use uh, have been the ones that work and and I get back to our normalized return approach where we calculate what we think a comp company's value would be in a normal environment and it's amazing how often when one of our stocks gets bought out uh, the price that a company is paying for it is very comparable or similar to what we've calculated as the normalized value, which tells us that we're looking at companies the way a real investor, a real company uh, looks at it, not just playing what I used to call the, the bigger fool theory. Of, you know, I'll buy it and sell it to some other poor fool at a higher price. Uh, if you're buying something based on real underlying value, uh, your, your, your odds are, are much, much better. So just to, to, again, just to follow up on that, and, I, and we may have touched on this already, but, you know, how do you, I mean, and this may be proprietary as well, but, you know, if, if possible, like, how, how does the firm calculate normalized value? Well, again, we, we go back and look at uh, history and comparables to see what, what kind of return on equity should this business be able to earn. The theory being that either the, um, the forces of uh, returning things to to norm will occur, or if this company can't do it on their own, there's other companies out there that'll buy them and and do it for them. So 
if you can identify what a company should earn in a normalized environment, it gives you a uh, earnings objective. And you can go back and look at history and see what kind of a relative PE the market has placed on those earnings when, when they've been in normal times. And by when you apply the normal PE to the normal earnings, it gives you a price objective. And it's, it's so nice because that not only gives you a, an upside objective, but it gives you a sell target. Mm-hmm. Once the company starts getting towards that or exceeding that, uh, it gives you an automatic uh, sell signal. So it, it's a really um, good way of doing it without having to uh, spend a lot of time, which we don't, trying to figure out what the company's next quarter earnings are. We, we think that's a fool's game. Uh, not, nobody's really been very good at doing that over the years. Uh, so we take a longer term approach. And in fact, our typical holding uh, is, tends to be between two and four years. And if you think about it, that makes sense because if a company's having a problem, they don't turn it around in a quarter. It sometimes takes a year or two to turn the company around. And then it takes the market another year or two for the market's perception of that turnaround to get built into the stock price. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a two, three, four year uh, time frame uh, makes sense from a fundamental standpoint, uh, we think. Right. So then... So, Dennis, then what, what is your advice uh, for new microcap investors? What, what should they be looking out for? What, what should, should they be doing? Well, you know, in addition to spending time on value and balance sheet, uh, we have found uh, that spending time on uh, uh, looking at the company's insider activity, uh, both for supporting your buy decision, but also is giving you a warning flag. I mean, if you may think the stock still looks okay, but if you start seeing four, five, six of the insiders doing heavy selling, you know that should be a warning flag. Uh, they they know if uh, if there's something going on in the company, they know when when they could sell out at a much higher price. Uh, it's much different than say a General Electric, where there's 300 vice presidents, and if you see four of them selling, how do you know what that means? In the microcap, uh, you see three or four uh, insiders selling. Uh, yeah, it's a much more powerful signal, we think, in the micro caps, both on the buy and the sell side. Yeah, that's a big deal. <laughs> uh, that that's usually when you see a couple of them in the micro caps, you're usually kind of like, huh? Yeah, it, it's not always the case. I mean, sometimes sure. they need money to buy a house, or you know, there's always things that that occur. But that, and that's why we look for multiple. Uh, sellers or at least multiple times and, and look at the size of the sale relative to their position. Right. Uh, and, and again, you got to blend it all together uh, with, with where the stock is and uh, what, what else you know about the company. But uh, we think you, you ignore it at your peril. Mm-hmm. You know, another, another topic actually that we just talked about in, in the last episode um, uh, on the podcast, and that has to do with CEO compensation and stock ownership. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, all of the things being equal, um, one of the things we'll look at is is what is the incentive comp based on, um, and then we like to see uh, management's interest aligned with the shareholders. Certainly, um, in terms of ownership, it's a fine line because you want some uh, again to be aligned with the shareholders. You want some ownership, but if it gets too much, then it prevents 
the takeover uh, possibility that I was suggesting before. If the company, you know, doesn't turn themselves around, if they can fend everybody off because of their insider holdings, then one of your potential avenues for success is is uh, is not there. So, you know, we like some good strong ownership, but not generally so big that it it controls the company. Right. So for you, it's it's all about incentives. You want to make sure those incentive packages are really are done smartly and and really in line with with the with the shareholder base correct got it so dennis we're at that point now uh you know we're just uh, starting to finish up here where can my audience go and find more information about you and encora advisors uh the best place is encora's website uh it's www.encora a-n-c-o-r-a.net and there's two sections in there, one uh, called Institutional Strategies with a subheading for Ancora Microcap. And then there's a Mutual Fund section because we do have a, a public mutual fund. Uh, so in the Mutual Fund section, there's also an Ancora Microcap Fund section. So that would be the best area to find uh, all kinds of information. For sure. Dennis. Thank you again so much for joining me today on the Planet Microcap podcast. And, uh, hey, I'm rooting for you. You know, let's let's see a game seven. Well, right now we'll go for a game five. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, you you enjoy game, uh, game four and uh, have a great rest of your weekend, sir. Okay. Thanks a lot, Bo. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Dennis, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.